everyone, and welcome to Behold, the podcast where we try to answer once and for all, what is the best comic book adaptation? Yes, be it movie or TV show, we'll watch it and rank it until we have our definitive number one. And who's we? Well, Hellboy! I'm your host, Andrew, and as per usual, I'm joined by my willing and able co-host, Mick. I'm leaving. I'm quitting now. I'm not even I warned you, I warned me. you the puns were going to go. <laughs> Household top. <laughs> no, I can't do it. I can't do it. But Mick, we rehearsed them and everything. Are you sure, man? I mean, are you oh, really sure, no. man? Oh, no. Be- being on the hearing side, I get it. Yeah. I get it. <laughs> you see, I'm not even going to sit here and wait long enough for you to fire me. I'm quitting. <laughs> <laughs> Apart from that, though, Mick, how are you doing today? Not too bad, not too bad. I've had a, I've had a slight touch of APS this morning, which is uh, adhesive pillow syndrome. Ah. But uh, apart from that, I'm fine. I had a, I had a sort of pre-Halloween scare for one of our other podcasts. Uh, I had to watch um, Absolute Beginners. That is the name of a David Bowie song, and so I assume also a David Bowie-themed film. Well, not a David Bowie-themed film, although he is largely one of the best things in it. (laughs) But yes, so that was my Halloween movie for the week. Interesting. I, I had an absolute disaster of a Halloween. See, I bought a big bag of Maltesers, you know, hand out to any trick-or-treaters, and then we didn't get a single one. So I was forced, forced, to just eat them all myself. Oh, man. You suffer for your art, don't you? I, I do, indeed. The, um, yeah, interesting, with, uh, with our Halloween, um, we've We've previously um, always made sure we get them because what we found is that the number of trick-or-treaters you get is inversely proportional to the amount of sweets you've got in. So if you if you forget because you're busy, you'll I'll get, get That's when the flood arrives. Yeah. And if you get tons in, there'll be like one five-year-old at six, six o'clock with some nervous-looking parents at the at the end of the path. And that's it. Uh, this year, however, I think because of the strange circumstances in which we live, uh, I just didn't get round to getting any sweets in, and we got no trick or treaters, which meant I could have a hooray! <laughs> it's the best of both worlds. <laughs> which meant I could just have a nice, relaxing evening in watching my Style Council documentary. Nice. Anyway, enough chit chat because it is now time for us to file down our horns and load up our ludicrously huge pistols as we behold Hellboy. 2004. Yes. (laughs) As I was going to say, not just Hellboy, the good Hellboy. (laughs) This is the 2004 film directed by Guillermo del Toro uh, and written by him as well with additional story by Peter Briggs and based on the comics created by Mike Bignola. Boo! Yes, this is 
that this is maybe one of the first points of contention. And but once again, we're, we're heading to make his objectively wrong corner. <laughs> you don't like the Hellboy comics. Right. Can I just say? it's not... I mean, you, you do need to morally defend your position. Right. It's not that I don't like Hellboy comics. I think the stories are okay. It's the artwork that I don't like. I don't like Mike Mignola's art style. And it's not just in Hellboy that I don't like it. I don't like it in any comics he draws. He's even, I, he's even I ru- mean, I guess you're consistent at least. He's even man. ruined a Batman story for me. See, as someone who does not just like Mike Mignola's art, thinks it's probably one of my favourite comic book arts, I, I cannot understand your position. I'll get the cut. Yeah, so this was Mick's last show. <laughs> Ever. Yes. Tune in next week when I'll have a much more reliable co-host, just myself. <laughs> and the voices in your head. <laughs> At least they agree about Hellboy. <laughs> but, and the weird thing, the, the thing is, I really wanted... I think, um, I mean... It, it was impossible on four panel for me to ever review Hellboy comics because I'd have had to pry them from your cold dead hands. Um, but um, I, I, on the basis of this film, I I was really looking forward to reviewing some Hellboy comics, <sighs> and then I yeah. saw them, and I wasn't a fan anymore of the comic. Madness, Mick. No, I mean, I guess Madness was a seven-piece beat combo from the late seventies, early eighties, who were loosely associated with the two-tone movement. I don't see the correlation here. Fine, if you're going to be like that, shall I do a synopsis then? Yes. <laughs> So, as always, I will point out that this synopsis and the discussion following it are going to have full spoilers for the film. And I'm going to point out that it has been 16 years. What are you waiting for? It is available on several streaming services. We've got it down, Pat. (laughs) So, Hellboy. The story kicks off in 1944, where Professor Trevor Broom Rushenholm played by Kevin Trainer in this scene, but by John Hurt, the guy most of the movie, assists an allied mission against the Thule Society and a cult Nazi order led by Karl Ruprecht Cronin, played by Vladislav Behrin. Uh, the Thule Society is working with the Russian mystic Grigory Rasputin, uh, Carol Rodin, to create a portal that will summon the eldritch gods known as the Ogdru Jihad into our world. The allies destroy the portal, but not before an infant demon is summoned. Trevor adopts this demon, who the other shoulders name the uh, the distinctively uncreative Hellboy. Rasputin is uh, also killed in the attack, but 60 years later he's resurrected by his girlfriend Ilsa Hauptstein, uh, Bridget Hodson, and a now mostly mechanical Cronin. Uh, we're then introduced to FBI agent John Myers, Rupert Evans, 
who has just been recruited by the Bureau of Paranormal Research and Defence to serve as a minder for their top agent, a now adult Hellboy, who's played by Ron Perlman, and it, as if you needed telling. And interestingly, didn't get renamed Hellman when he reached the age of majority. You know, I think they were going to, but then there was a bit of a lawsuit with the mayonnaise company. <laughs> but what a marketing idea. Mayonnaise with a filed home demon on the front. Hellman's mayonnaise <laughs> yeah. is devilishly good. <laughs> it just writes itself. I pack the podcasting market. I think we need to move into marketing. <laughs> Anyway, Myers accompanies Hellboy on a mission, along with HB's fishman best friend Abe Sapien, Doug Jones, uh, but voiced by an uncredited David Hyde Pierce, which, just to kind of tangent a little bit, yeah, I, I kind of get why David Hyde Pierce doesn't want to be credited for this, because he, he doesn't do anything, does he? No. It's literally just repeating the things Doug Jones has said exactly the same way Doug Jones has said them. Yes. It's also why, do you know why David Hyde Pierce was hired to replace Doug Jones? No. Because the, cause the producers wanted a big name actor on the film. David Hyde Pierce is their big name actor. Well, that's the, the a from Frasier. <laughs> yes. Is their big guest. Was Kelsey Grammer not available? <laughs> no, actually, I, I guess he was probably starting getting blue paint slathered all over him for that X-Men film. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, while investigating a break-in at a museum, Hellboy is attacked by the resurrecting demon Samael, who is seemingly killed after being electrocuted on a train line after a protracted battle. Hellboy then sneaks off to see his love interest, Liz Sherman, Selma Blair, a former BPRD agent who institutionalised herself due to her uncontrollable pyrokinesis. Uh, Abe is then able to work out that Samael may have laid eggs kind of in the, the tunnels, and so the BPRD return to the sewers to confront a whole pack of Samaels. Several agents are killed, and Abe is seriously wounded, but Hellboy is able to defeat Samael, again after a long battle, this time involving kittens, <laughs> and is even able to able to capture Cronin, who was also just hanging around the sewers. Because, I mean, I guess, where else do you go when you're a Nazi made of clockwork? However, Cronin's capture is all a ploy, and while Hellboy is out following Myers and Liz on a date, uh, he resuscitates and kills Broom. Because this was all part of Rasputin's plan, to lay a trail of clues that will lead Hellboy to him, allowing him to use Hellboy's right hand of doom to reopen the portal to the Ogdru Jihad. Unaware of this, H.B., Liz, Myers, and the Bureau's new director, Tom Manning, Jeffrey Tambor, head to Russia to confront Rasputin in his mausoleum. So, will Hellboy save the world? Or end it? It's the first one. Well, that took all the uh, tension out of it. Um... As did, as did the existence of Hellboy 2, the Golden Army. <laughs> yes, exactly. That was, that was my thinking, is that it is quite hard to set up a, a cliffhanger. Ooh, will it be the end of the world when the film does have a sequel? 
Anyway, Mick, mm. it's just bloody nice to watch a good film again, isn't it? Isn't it, though? It's... I mean, it's kind of perfect, isn't it? It is. It's just... The character... It's a, a package of... Lo- I, I want to call it almost a lovely horror film. Yeah. Well, this is it. Because the, the danger you've got with a comic book adaptation where the comic book itself is a horror franchise is you can go too far down the horror route or you can overemphasize the comic bookness um, or you can just completely ignore both of those things and try and make just a movie that's loosely inspired by your genre and your source material. But this actually gets the balance just right, I think. It's it's ridiculous enough to be a, an adaptation of a comic book, but it it plays with the tropes of horror just enough to, to be different within that genre. It's not stereotypical horror tropes that it's using. So, yeah, let's just put it in at number one and I'm, I'm going to go have a cup of coffee. Oh hey, well, there we go. That was a that was a nice, quick one, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> it turns out we could have just done both the Hellboy films. Yeah. <laughs> and possibly, possibly the reboot as a counterbalance. <laughs> oh, no, I don't know. Why, why, why would you want to ruin a perfectly good show with 2018's Hellboy? <laughs> I mean, the, the thing with it is, and it is the crying shame that we never got to see the last part of this trilogy. Um, but the characters are all just perfectly cast. Um, Selma Blair plays the vulnerability of Liz Sherman's character beautifully. That nervousness, the, the, the reluctance to be part of something because she doesn't know what damage she's going to wreak. Yeah, yeah, and I think especially that that is like quite a hard character to play to play as well. Yeah, because especially at the start of the film, she's supposed to be like quite flat, you know, because she's obviously suppressing a lot of stuff. Yeah, while she's been hospitalized. Yeah, but like that vulnerability still does come through. Yeah, and Ron Perlman as Hellboy, he's big, he's full of bravado, he's he's like a thirties pulp hero, isn't he? Yes, he is, which is kind of part of the point of Hellboy. Yeah. Is that he's very much like an old school pulp hero, but he's just like punching werewolves with his big rocky fist. But but then again, <laughs> when you start, when people start talking about Liz, again, a, a sort of melancholy vulnerability kicks in. And it's it's believable, despite the fact that he's covered in huge prosthetics he still gets across the fact that Hellboy really has has a torch for Liz. John Hurt is, well, John Hurt is, well, John Hurt. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's John Hurt. Exactly. He's, he's very much, you get what you pay for yeah. with John Hurt, don't you? Name me one bad John Hurt performance. <laughs> I mean... No, I suppose it doesn't count if just everything around John Hurt and Doctor Who is complete tosh. <laughs> Get out. Good, we've readdressed the balance then. 
if if I've got one if I've got one slight criticism is that it's that um the the Nazi characters are a bit stereotypical Nazi. But they're comic book Nazis, so it kind of works. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that they are a bunch of Nazis trying to summon eldritch gods to destroy the world. Yeah. I don't need them to be that nuanced. Also, more importantly, what they make up for in nuance, they make up for in really cool spinny sword tricks. <laughs> um, and Jeffrey Tambor, as Tom Manning, plays the sort of bumbling, by-the-rules, government agency man perfectly as well. He is, Yeah, he is one of those things where, like, Within about three seconds, you completely understand. Oh yeah, I know, I know this character. Yeah, yeah. Um, Just him really petulantly yelling, "I'm the one in charge." Clearly displaying that he isn't. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, and that, that just. No, I can't think of a single thing in this film that made me went, oh, no, no, no. Okay, so for the interest of fairness, I do have a few criticisms. Well, I mean... And probably the first one is um, John Myers, played by Rupert Evans, is kind of basically redundant. Like, I feel like you could take him out of the film... And it's pretty much the same thing. Oh, he's the Indiana Jones, is he? He is very much the Indiana Jones. <laughs> and I think a lot of it is that it's, again, one of those things where the studio is gone. No, you can't just make this film about, like, a big red monkey man. <laughs> we need to have the, the human protagonist, because how else will audiences relate to this film? Apart from, you know, it just being very good and having rich, believable characters in it. But no. One of them needs to be a, a normal man who is just the most aggressively normal person on the planet. But even then, it's like, I, I don't mind him. Yeah. Um, he... I guess if you like, he, he's playing the same role uh, just to just to ram home how good a franchise it is. He's playing the role of the Doctor Who companion, isn't he? The in the in the world yeah. of craziness, he's the he's the relatable human character that can view yeah. it through our eyes. Yeah, and I guess you do kind of probably need him for some scenes, just as like an excuse for characters to explain things. Yeah. So. Yeah. And then, kind of semi-related to that point, I was going to make. So I'd say some of the CGI looks a bit ropey, and a lot of that. So it's actually a bit of an interesting story. Because originally the studio, they wanted Vin Diesel to play Hellboy. Because again, they wanted a big name actor. And also, instead of well, being well, just Diesel a demon... Was Vin Diesel that big a name then? I mean, I, I guess he was being... It was 2004. Actually, yeah, it's only 2004, isn't it? So there's only been like one Fast and Furious yeah. film. Yeah. 
And I mean, I, I knew of Ron Perlman from um, the original TV series Beauty and the Beast, as well as some other bits and pieces. So Yeah, but, but no, no, apparently Studio wanted Vin Diesel, and also he was going to be a human man who turned into Hellboy when he got angry, like some kind of... Hulk? Yeah. Right. Incredibly. Incredibly. <laughs> but no, but basically, like, Del Toro and Mike Bugnall, they both hit back saying, no, like, I mean, and even when Mike Bernal was writing the series, his dream casting for that character is Ron Perlman, because because Ron Perlman is perfect for this role. Yeah. So like they were insistent, saying like, no, Ron Perlman, it's got to be Ron Perlman, and no, he is going to be a demon for the whole film. At which point the the studio kind of petulantly said, "Fine, but we're cutting your CGI budget." <laughs> And then, but that then that kind of brings it back around because, considering the fact that the film had barely anything to work with, I mean the CGI still looks pretty fine. Yeah. And the practical effects, like even today, they still look absolutely incredible. Yeah, and I, I think the other thing is that Del Toro at the time was very keen on on making it look like a sort of Harryhausen style fantasy adventure, didn't he? Uh, wasn't he? And I think possibly the the cut to the CGI budget maybe helped that happen. Yeah, actually, just made it all the more authentic. Yeah, so certainly, certainly, the early clips of of the young Hellboy emerging from the portal feels very sort of modern day Harryhausen style. Yeah, like there should be a stop motion skeleton in the background. Yeah. <laughs> And like Vesputin's tomb as well, with like all the big like looming spires and massive gears everywhere. That just that just looks fantastic, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah because the thing is, if you, if you look at the plot of this on paper, and you have no prior knowledge of Hellboy, which to be fair, when this came out, I didn't. I was aware of it as a comic book. I'd seen it on comic book shelves, um, but I'd never sort of taking the plunge, as it were. Um, if you if you just look at the plot and read it, it sounds ridiculous. It sounds like a proper over-the-top sci-fi, stroke horror, stroke supernatural movie. But somehow it manages to pull it off where there are there are films that have got less ridiculous sounding plots or rest, less convoluted sounding plots that feel ridiculous when you watch them because they've overblown too much of one element or they've overdone the CGI or something like that. Yeah, and I think basically because Hellboy is like a combination of two of Del Toro's greatest strengths, which is monsters that look freaking incredible. Yeah. And just, like, having a bunch of weird freaks, but, like, that are just a really close-knit family and has got a lot of heart. Yeah. Whatever happened to that Del Toro? Yeah, I think he just kind of faded away into obscurity a bit, didn't he? Well, he, he certainly stopped being able to do the things you've just described by the time he got to Valerian. Did he do Valerian? Yeah. 
We might have oh, to. Oh, dear. So... Yeah, because he waited 50 years for the technology to catch up. Do you think maybe just in that time he oh, no, no. lost all the script? Ed- edit all that out. It wasn't. I remember now. Ah, phew, thank goodness. It was uh, Besson, wasn't it? That's right, yeah, Luke Besson, who who is very much not Guillermo del Toro in terms of talent or name or yeah. nationality. Yeah. Phew, you're all right, del Toro. You can carry on making films. Or you can carry on announcing that you're going to make films only for them to be abruptly cancelled after years of <laughs> years of build-up. Anyway, yeah. I think also one of the interesting things about Hellboy is it does actually quite significantly change a lot from the comics, but in a way that actually, first of all, works and still, like, captures the same spirit. Like, I would say Hellboy himself is quite a different character. Like, I know the one in the comics, kind of, that's a much older Hellboy. Like, I know he was deliberately based off kind of, like, Mike McNall's dad. He uh, worked as a cabinet maker, and basically he'd, like, come home from work with all these stories of, like, horrible, horrible accidents, and just be, like, really not fussed by them. Right. So I think that, that's kind of, like, that's the point in the comics. Hellboy is meant to be, like, a guy in his late 50s who's just, like, oh, yeah, zombies, dragons, skeletons, just part of the job, isn't it? Right. Whereas this is obviously kind of a, a much younger Hellboy. Yeah, he's a sort of, like, um, post-adolescent type creature. Yeah, and, and I think it works better because in a film, having a character whose who's main reaction to everything is just uh, this again is is kind of a bit hard to build an emotional core around. Yeah. And it just it gives Ron Perlman a lot more to work with. Yeah, true that. Um, and I think it, it does still capture the, like a lot of it, and probably like some of my favorite scenes are just like kind of Hellboy and Abe acting like, oh, what's that resurrection demons escaped into a museum? Great, it's another day on the job. Yeah. And also keeps Hellboy's like iconic catchphrase of just, well, crap. But that's that's the other thing as well that that element of sort of oh, it's just another day on the job. It makes it makes Hellboy and Abe a sort of supernatural Starsky and Hutch. Yes, they are very much just like a buddy cop team. <laughs> yeah. Right, I'm trying to think of anything else that particularly stood out as being astoundingly awful. You know, just in the interest of balance. It is. And while you are thinking that, I do have to also mention the bit, though, when Hellboy gets hit by a train and, like, his horns is smoking and then, like, he just stands up, sees his hand is on fire and uses it to light a cigar. Because that bit is very good. 
You see, if I'd have managed to think of anything that was particularly awful, that would have just balanced it out completely. So, there's no point. No, you're right. It's almost like Hellboy. It's a very, very good film. It is. And it even manages to include like a little reference to one of my favourite Hellboy stories. Ah, that was which is one of, on me. Was, so, like, yeah, it's a story called The Corpse, and it's basically um, where Hellboy... So he's investigating a girl that gets kidnapped by, uh, by fairies, and they tell him they'll give him the girl back if he can find kind of somewhere to bury like the, the body of a hanged man. And so he's got to kind of start lugging sort of this skeleton with a noose tied around its neck, who's just constantly bitching and moaning at him. Right. And they basically they reference that kind of in, in the rush a bit where, you know, he, he brings that corpse to life to uh, help guide him to the tomb. And again, he's just lugging around this angry Russian corpse. <laughs> and it is just, it's for me, it's one of the iconic Hellboy things. Because it is just, it's such a weird thing. Yeah. And he's just so nonplussed by it. Just, oh, of course, of course, I've got to carry around like a still speaking corpse so that I can find somewhere that he can be buried. This is my Tuesday. <laughs> also, I kind of forgot that this film is actually quite appropriate for about when we're doing it, because it is technically a Halloween film. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Halloween. That day when children go out and knock on doors in the hope of getting some candy and people like pumpkins so that they can ward off evil spirits. Or, in the case of 2020, not that. I mean, I still got drunk and watched a bunch of horror films and ate way too much chocolate, so basically same for me. <laughs> right. I also was going to make another point about Hellboy but it has been just pushed out my mind by the sheer amount of chocolate <laughs> oh dear anyway I, I guess then we should probably rank it indeed because I feel like our in-depth discussion has reached the point of Hellboy, it's good. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, bearing in mind our criteria that it's adaptation of the material and the quality of the movie. It's definitely in the top five, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. So, shall I run through what our current top five is then? Yes, run through that. So, at number one, we've got Road to Perdition. At number two, we've got Sin City. At number three, we've got uh, season two of The Umbrella Academy. At number four, we've got the Watchmen miniseries. 
And at number five, we've got the Crisis on Infinite Earths Arrowverse event. Uh, you see, I'm tempted to say it's not as good a movie as Road to Perdition, but kind of it's not its fault. Yeah, I mean, I think saying it's not as good as Road to Perdition is not necessarily a criticism of Hellboy. No. It's just a, what is as good a movie as Road to Perdition? Yeah. Not a lot. And what was three? Uh, three is Umbrella Academy Season 2. Um, I mean, I guess... So, probably the, the main point for me is that I definitely like Hellboy more than Sin City. But then Sin City is also just such a perfect... Like one-to-one taking a comic yeah, and just taking everything about that comic and turning it into a film. Did Sin City change less? Yeah, I think Sin City definitely changed that. I feel like Sin City is pretty much like the plot of the comics verbatim. Yeah. But then is it better to not change anything? Or is it better to say, okay, here are certain parts that won't work as a film. This is what we can do to improve them as a film. It depends whether you want to upset hardcore fans or not. Or if you want the bottom half of the internet to explode. Um... I mean, it, it's also, I feel like we're, we're maybe drifting towards the fourth secret criteria. Oh. Which is, it's our podcast, we do what we want, and I kind of want to put Hellboy as number two. Okay, fair enough. I'm not going to fight you on that. Mainly because we're about to enter another lockdown, and I won't have time before that happens. Actually, yeah, that's true. You, you literally can't come over. No. And just sort of stand outside my window and glower a bit. <laughs> oh, but I did that last night. You were just too drunk. Uh, at, you were too just just too drunken in a chocolate coma to notice. <laughs> well, that's good. Now, now I can undo my earlier proposition that well, I, I can't eat that much chocolate again now that the hallucinations have started. <laughs> Now that I'm seeing the ghastly visage of Mick just haunting outside my window. <laughs> anyway, yeah, I think that'll about do us. The, it is almost the problem that Hellboy is so good that it's just... Yeah, I mean, obviously, it's very good, and it goes at number two on the list. Yeah. Probably not much in contention there from when we started the show. No. No, it's... <laughs> You can't even accuse it of being too long, really, can you? No, actually, yeah, that, that is the point I was going to say, is that after literally 30 days of nights, yes. God, this, this film is just so refreshingly... <laughs> like, I wouldn't, I wouldn't call it breezy, but just 
It keeps you engaged for the entire two hours it's on. Yeah, there's there's not really any dead time is it in it, is there? They even managed no. to make any scenes of travelling pass interestingly. Yeah, I mean, mainly because a lot of those travelling scenes are Hellboy-like, awkwardly lumbering across rooftops because he's just a big old lug. Yeah. Right, I think our work here is done. So, yeah, that's it from us. Uh, if you do want to listen to more, you can listen to all our episodes on the feed or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you do subscribe to the show, you'll make sure you never miss an episode. You can also listen to our other podcast, the Comics Review Show 4 panel, over on the Geek Show Podcast Network. And if you want to get in touch, our email is beholdpod at gmail.com, or you can follow us on Twitter at beholdpod. Also, if you are a fan, we'd really appreciate it if you left us a review on your podcast app of choice, or recommended us to a friend. It's the best way for us to grow as a show and reach you listeners. So that should be everything. Until next time, I've been Andrew. I've been Mick. So long and thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.